Well, believe it or not, uh, it's taken us about a year, but we have arrived at the final chapter of Romans. I'm not going to do the whole chapter in one sermon. But we are at the final greetings, and then he'll have a final word of of warning uh, for the readers in Rome. And you might think that uh, the greetings for somebody writing to a city he has never visited would be very brief. Well, in the case of Romans, you'd be wrong. Uh, Paul actually spends quite a while sending greetings to a whole number of people in Rome. And uh, there's some fascinating things that I think uh, when we look at them in the context of everything else we know of the story of what God was up to in the first century really uh, has a lot to say to us. Uh, so we're, we're going to be looking at these uh, today. We're continuing in this series of sermons from the book of Romans that I've titled The Righteousness of God Revealed. And uh, I have titled today's message The Family Business. We are in Romans chapter 16 verses 1 through 16. And let's, let's dive right in and see who it is that he's going to be greeting here in Rome. Uh, he begins, uh, let me read verses 1 and 2. Now I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deaconess of the congregation in Sincrea, so that you might receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and to assist her in whatever need she might have, for she has been a patron to many, including me. Uh, This is actually, there are a couple of things in these greetings that are kind of uh, hot-button issues in biblical scholarship. And I'll I'll try to unpack these for us because uh, you might not even be aware that anybody cared uh, about the details in these greetings. But Paul uh, is commending to his readers in Rome this sister Phoebe. Now, in this whole list of greetings he's going to send, all the people he mentions, this is the only person he... he, uh, spells out this, I commend this person to you. And I think that's because most likely this person, this uh, sister Phoebe, was probably the person Paul gave the letter to and she was the one who traveled to Rome and delivered the letter for Paul. Uh, So that is why he is commending her to them because she is the one bearing the letter and uh, he is uh, vouching for her that uh, he has actually commissioned her to represent him in this sense uh, before the congregations in Rome and to deliver this letter to them there in Rome. And uh, you might wonder, well then what's what's the big controversy? Well, it's this uh, thing that he mentions that she is a deaconess of the congregation in Sincrea. Now, Sincrea was uh, on the the eastern side of of Corinth. And Corinth, as if you know about the geography of Greece, Greece has kind of two big masses of body, uh, of land. And the two are connected by a very thin little strip of land. That little thin strip of land is where Corinth is. And uh, Sincrea was the, the part of Corinth that faced east uh, onto the, the, the sea there and, and into the Mediterranean uh, where you could go towards the eastern side of the Roman Empire. But if you went across the city to the other side of Corinth, you could get on a boat and sail across to Italy and get to Rome. So Paul is, is writing this letter from, from Sincrea there on the eastern side of the city of Corinth. And uh, that is where this uh, lady Phoebe is. And he describes her as a deaconess in the congregation that is in Sincrea. And uh, many translations uh, don't want to use the word deaconess there. They translate the word, she is a servant. 
And I'll tell you why uh, people translate it that way, is uh, that they are uncomfortable with the idea that she had, uh, was a person holding this office within church life that we would call deacon. I think there are a couple of things to remember about this that will be helpful to us. First of all, the term deacon, when it was being used in the first century by the Christians that were, were the first believers and the, the early church as it was beginning, this word deacon was not a religious word. It just meant servant. It's the word you would use to describe somebody who serves your table. Somebody who serves you in whatever menial task you have need, a servant. So oftentimes in the New Testament as we're translating, people will translate it servant, and other times they will translate it deacon to designate somebody who has specifically been set aside by the church to serve a need in the life of the church. Now why does this become a problem? Well, I think part of the problem is that in the life of the church today, 2,000 years later, uh, the whole idea of deacon, deacon is a word we no longer use as anything but a religious term. It's not a common word. We don't use it to describe the person at Chili's who brought us our tacos. Uh, we use it to describe specifically somebody who has been set aside by the church to do something for the church. And uh, because we tend to use the word only in this technical sense, we think uh, that it, it's reserved for something different. Another problem is that over 2,000 years of church history, in many occasions and in many congregations, deacons have ceased to be servants of the church. And the office of deacon has become a leadership position, a position uh, where a person wields some degree of authority and has decision-making responsibilities. And uh, in, in some churches, deacons are even kind of the ones who uh, kind of oversee the pastor and kind of uh, are, are a bit of a check and balance against the pastorate in some way. Um, that's really foreign to the way it's used in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the word simply means servant. And true, the church often would set aside people to serve specific needs. We have a specific need. We want you to take care of it. We're praying over you. We are asking you to help us. The first example we have of this is in the book of Acts when there's a need to sort out a problem with the distribution of food to widows and they set aside seven men to serve and make sure that this was done properly. But this is the whole idea uh, that uh, in the New Testament, a deacon is, is merely a servant. And the fact that the church sets you aside to this uh, doesn't remove the fact that you're being set aside to serve, not to rule, not to govern, not to exercise authority over others, but simply to serve. Uh, now, the fact that he mentions as he's commending her to them, that he mentions that she is a deaconess of the congregation in Sincrea seems to indicate, I think, that he's trying to give her credentials before the congregations in Rome who might not know her and let them know that the church in Sincrea, this sister congregation, has already seen her as a fit servant of Christ and they have laid hands on her and set her aside as a servant in their church so they should have no qualms about receiving her among their congregations as a servant of Christ in a fellow congregation. And I, I, I know that some people believe 
uh, that uh, if we read Paul's instructions to Timothy about setting aside, aside people to serve as deacons, uh, some people believe that Paul is indicating that only men should do that. And they point to 1 Timothy 3.12, particularly this sentence, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. And the argument goes that uh, if a deacon has to be the husband of one wife, then women can't be the husband of one wife. Therefore, women cannot be deacons. Now, of course, you, you have to realize when we say something like that, we're not actually saying what Paul said. We're adding to it. We're going beyond what Paul said. And here's the odd thing. Most people would read that to mean that if a man is a deacon, he should be a one-woman man. He should not have several wives. But if a man should happen to not be married, then this instruction would not really apply to him uh, except to say that he shouldn't be, you know, being around with a bunch of different women. But uh, you can be single and have no wife at all and still serve as a deacon. Most people would say that you don't have to be married to be a deacon. And yet, they would say that you uh, have to fulfill this as a requirement if you're a woman. You can't because you can't have more than one wife. Now I think it makes sense that Paul would not have repeated the instruction for female deacons because in the first century world women did not have the option of marrying more than one man. Men did. Uh, and actually in the Greek it simply says he has to be a one woman man. That's the way it's worded in, in 1 Timothy. So I, don't, I think we're, we're, we're going beyond what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy if we try to say that somehow he is excluding women from serving the church as deacons. And in fact, if Paul had a problem with this, why would he glowingly commend Phoebe to the congregations in Rome and ask her to deliver this letter for him and actually point out to them as her credentialing that the church in Sancria has already set her aside as a deacon? You might say, oh no, Paul isn't saying deacon there. He just means she's a servant. And here's the, the uh, I think, somewhat shameful double standards that, that even churches today sometimes engage in. I don't think any church has a problem with men, women serving. They just don't want to call them deacons. They're ha happy for women to serve the church in a million different ways, just as long as they're not preyed upon and set apart and called deacons. That to me seems a bit hypocritical. We're happy for women to serve, we just don't want to recognize that. Uh, but uh, if Paul had a problem with it, not only would he not be commending Phoebe as a deacon, but uh, if he wanted to describe her as a servant of the church, there are other words he could have used that do not uh, have the, the associations that the word deacon has. He could have called her a doulos. Uh, a slave, a bondservant, which is a word he often uses to describe himself and to Christians in general. So there are a lot of other ways he could have described her, but he chose to describe her as a deaconess. And I think it's very clear he's describing her as what we would call a deacon, a first century New Testament deacon. And he asked that they receive her in the Lord. And this is the reminder Paul is making. Even though we're in serving in different congregations, we are all part of one family. We all have one Lord. And when we run into each other, we need to throw arms open to each other and welcome one another in the Lord because we belong to each other in him. And he says to do this in a manner worthy 
of the saints. And again, Paul is reminding them, we are set apart. We belong to God. Let's treat each other in light of that fact. And treat Phoebe with the honor and kindness that some fellow person who belongs to Christ deserves from you who also belong to Christ. He asks for them to assist her in whatever needs she might have. He's not sure what needs she might have when she gets there. It seems probable to me that perhaps Phoebe may have never been to Rome, doesn't have people she knows in Rome that she can stay with. Perhaps Paul is kind of uh, very, uh, in a very vague sense, throwing out there, maybe one of you guys should welcome her into your home and give her a place to stay. Whatever needs she might have, please attend to them. And he reminds them of one more thing about her. She has been a patron to many. Uh, and that's the idea of somebody of means who uh, actually uh, invests and helps other people in their work and what they're trying to do and perhaps uh, welcomes them into her home. And Paul says she's been a patron to many, including me. It may be, and I, I kind of wonder if Paul wasn't in Phoebe's home as he sat to write this letter to the Romans. Maybe she had been hosting him uh, and was traveling to Rome and he was going to send the letter with her. Uh, but uh, Paul vouches for her. Let's keep going. Uh, verses 3 through 6. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their neck for my life, whom not I alone thank, but also all the congregations of the Gentiles and the congregation in their house. Greet Epinetus, my beloved, who is the first fruits of Asia into Christ. Greet Mary, who toiled much for you. There are several people he mentions here, and I want to spend a little moment talking to you about Prisca and Aquila. And there are a couple of things I want to point out about this. First of all, Paul mentions Prisca before Aquila. Now the common standard way when you're describing a married couple, husband and wife, the, and even today it's often the norm, so back then doubly so, was that you mentioned the husband first and then the wife but Paul mentions the wife before the husband. In fact, they are mentioned in Paul's letters. They are also mentioned in the book of Acts. And most often, not every single time, but most often and always in Paul, Prisca is mentioned before Aquila. I think that isn't accidental. I think uh, she was an outstanding leader in the early life of the church. And people, when they thought of this unit of two that did ministry together she was the prominent face of it she was the one they thought of first and Paul is very uh, has no problem with listing her first even though that breaks convention in his day in fact he has two other married couples he's going to mention in the greetings and in both of those cases he mentions the husband first Andronicus uh, and Junia uh, and uh, Philologus and Julia he mentions always the husband first but in this case he mentioned Prisca first I think it's a mistake to read the Bible in such a way that men are somehow always to be the ones put up front and women are always to be put somewhere in the background in a supportive role 
We call it complementarian, uh, but it, 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 it smacks of, of uh, egotistical on men's part to insist on the limelight and relegating women always to the shadows. And Paul doesn't do that. He highlights Prisca first. That doesn't mean he's saying she's better than, but, but he chooses in a culture that uh, often puts women in the background, he chooses to put her front and center. And I think he does that deliberately. He doesn't distinguish between the two. They are my fellow workers in Christ. Both of them have shared in the kind of ministry that Paul has been doing. One other thing I want to point out about this, and I think it, it might be significant. Paul insists on describing her as Prisca. You might notice that in the book of Acts she is described as Priscilla. And the, there's a difference between these two. Priscilla is a diminutive form of the name Prisca. Paul chooses to describe her as Prisca, not Priscilla. And I think it's part of the same reason that he puts her name first, is he's trying to ensure that people are taking her seriously and not being dismissive of her as some little woman, but that he is giving her the full honor that he would give to any servant of Christ in the ministry of the Lord. Uh, why do, it's the difference of referring to a man as William as opposed to Billy. Paul calls her Prisca. Uh, I think that's uh, not accidental, that he chooses to try to honor her as much as he can. Um, and I, I say all of this uh, to point out that we often think um, that uh, men have to be kind of the, the head leadership role. The pastor has to be a man. The teacher has to be a man. Those who are kind of out front and talking to others and sharing word of the Lord and authority, those have to be men. And yet Paul himself, who is the one people often point to to try to make that point, Paul is the one in 1 Corinthians 11 who gives women instructions on how to go about prophesying in the congregation, sharing a message from God. Tell me that doesn't put you in a position of teaching and authority over others. And Paul seems to have no problem with women, do, women doing that. Uh, and um, the reason for this, I think, is a misunderstanding of what Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. This is a verse often quoted. Paul says there, and I'll read the ESV translation, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And I know women, when they read that, cringe. Uh, and I think the part of the problem here is that we have mistranslated that. I've said this before. In the Greek, there is not a separate word that means wife. All we have is the word woman. Based on context, we decide whether he's talk the person is talking about a wife or just a woman in general. And it makes a huge difference whether we're talking about a marital issue or we're talking about a gender issue. So uh, I think rather this verse should be translated, I do not permit a wife to teach or to exercise authority over a husband. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And I think what Paul is meaning here 
is that it is not healthy in a marriage for a wife to adopt a maternal attitude towards her husband and treat him as a child that needs to be instructed and taught. And sometimes that is a negative dynamic that can creep into marriages where women uh, allow the husband to put them into a maternal role and uh, refuse to uh, be mature themselves and the wife kind of is constantly treating the husband as a child. That's not healthy for either in a marriage. And I think that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I don't think he's talking about women. He's talking about how a husband and wife need to relate to each other. But other than that, uh, when he talks about Prisca, he has no problem describing her as a fellow worker of his in Christ Jesus. Now, what's the story? What's the background? Uh, Paul, when he first arrived in Corinth found that there was there a couple that was already converted, a couple of Jews who had been expelled from Rome when Emperor Claudius in AD 49 expelled all the Jews from Rome. Prisca and Aquila ended up in Corinth. And uh, it turns out that they had the same uh, secular job that Paul had. They were tent makers. And because of that, they had a connection both in their secular work and in the ministry task that they carried out because Paul spent 18 months in Corinth and established a firm congregation there over a year and a half. And uh, they worked right alongside him in that ministry of starting a church. And after Paul finished those 18 months, he sailed from Sincrea to Ephesus across there just a little way and very briefly stopped in Ephesus. And when he did that, Prisca and Aquila went with him. They sailed with him to Ephesus. And when he arrived in Ephesus, he was only there one Sabbath. He went into the synagogue and he shared Christ. And people asked him, stick around, tell us more about Jesus. And he said, I can't right now. I've got to get to Antioch, but I will come back. And he does eventually. He comes back and spends two and a half years in Ephesus. But uh, when he leaves, he leaves behind Prisca and Aquila in Ephesus with the very beginning of a nucleus of believers there. And they continue Paul's work in the city. Uh, so this is a pastoral team a missionary pastoral team. And Paul makes no distinction between what Prisca is doing and what Aquila is doing. They are serving in a pastoral and teaching and leading role. And in fact, while they're there in Corinth, a man named Apollos shows up. I'm not in Corinth, in Ephesus. A man named Apollos shows up. And he is a very well-learned man and very eloquent and he is powerfully preaching the gospel but he has an imperfect understanding of the gospel because all he knows up until that time is the baptism of John the Baptist. So Prisca and Aquila very discreetly take him aside and we're told Prisca and Aquila, not Aquila, both of them take him aside and they instruct him more correctly about the gospel. They correct his theology and bring him up to speed with the full theology. Of course, they've been a year and a half learning with Paul. They had plenty to teach. And they, they straighten him out and get his theology ironed out. And from there, he, he says, I want to go to Corinth. And uh, the congregation, the people that are in Ephesus, send him to Corinth. And no doubt, Prisca and Aquila are key components in commending Apollos to the church in Corinth because he ends up in Corinth as one of the prominent leaders in the city of Corinth after Paul has left the city. This is the background. 
And Paul says about them, they have risked their neck for my life. Paul is so grateful to them. That means that they have put their lives in danger for him. And he says, I'm not the only one who thanks them. Also, all the congregations of the Gentiles. And Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. So many congregations out there uh, are owe a debt of gratitude to Priscilla or Prisca and Aquila for having put their lives on the line to safeguard Paul's life so that he could continue doing the ministry he did. And he sends greetings to the congregation in their house. So back in Rome, they are serving as a pastoral team. There is a congregation meeting in their home and they are uh, the pastoral leaders in that congregation. Paul sends greetings to Epinetus, my beloved. It's interesting. This is a word he uses four times in these greetings. Beloved. Uh, it isn't just uh, <coughs> uh, that they are nice or uh, approved or uh, other things you might say about them, but there's such intimacy and such heartfelt warmth in that beloved. And that's really what Christ does with us. We become his beloved. And because of that, as he works in our hearts, we become beloved to each other. We treasure each other. We love each other profoundly. And there's a special reason Epinetus has a special place in Paul's heart. He was the first fruits of Asia into Christ. When Paul entered the region of Asia, the Roman region of Asia, which would be today modern Turkey, uh, when he entered into that region, Epinetus was the first person who opened his heart up to receive Christ. First fruits. And Paul thinks of his work uh, in uh, agricultural terms as a harvest he was the first fruit that he saw for his labor in Asia there's sweet memories there and this tells you the depth of how far back the faith goes among believers in Rome this guy is one of the earliest converts in the whole region of Asia that's now in Rome. Also he says, greet Mary who toiled much for you. This is another word he uses three times in this greeting. Not just worked, not just labored, toiled, worked hard. And we can't get away from that. That what we're called to in Christ is not uh, a hobby. It's not something we work in on some free weekends now and then, a little uh, touristy vacation we take once a summer to go somewhere exotic. The ministry we are called to in Christ requires grit and digging in our heels and putting our shoulder to it and actually toiling hard. It is often not easy work we must do in Christ. This word is repeated, I said, three times in this list. Let's keep going. And we get to the second verse that's uh, very controversial. Verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners who are notable among the apostles and who were in Christ before me. You might read that verse and say, why would anybody have any issues with this verse? Well, it's that apostles stuff. Why is that a problem? Because he is mentioning a husband and wife team. Andronicus is a man. Junia is a woman. 
And this has caused such consternation in the history of the church. In the first few centuries, everybody uh, uses just the name Junia, and that's it, Junia. Uh, but from uh, around a thousand on up uh, through the modern era, uh, the, the people tend to turn that into Junius and say that it was a contracted version of the male name Junianus. There are multiple problems with that. Of course, the, the oldest manuscripts all have Junia. Um, and uh, some scholars say that there is not a single example in any literature anywhere of the ancient world where that form of Junianus is found, Junius. That abbreviation of Junianus is found. Uh, some point to one single example in one writing uh, as a possible example of that. While the, word, the name Junia appears like 250 times in the literature we have available from this time period. So everything points to this, this is a husband and wife, Andronicus and Junia. Husband and wife team. Now why would that be a problem? Because he describes them not only as fellow Jews, they are my kinsmen, not only as fellow prisoners, people who have been put in jail because of their service to Christ, just as Paul has. But it's this phrase, they are notable among the apostles. That word notable could be translated notable or outstanding or distinguished, kind of standout examples among the apostles. Or it could be understood to mean uh, recognized or well-known or famous among the apostles. Now you can guess that some people who are very keen to make sure Junia is not an apostle want to read that word to mean uh, that they, the apostles know about them and have a good opinion of them, but not that they are one of them. And yet the fact that he chooses that word among, he doesn't say they're notable to the apostles. He says they're notable among, in, within. The preposition he chooses to connect them there, I think makes it very clear. He is saying that these fall within the group of people we would call apostles. Um, and Paul uh, describes them as this. Now, Here's what drives me bananas about this. If these were two men, nobody would argue about this. Nobody would have any issues. But just because it's a woman, and because we have unbiblical assumptions, there is no verse in the Bible that says a woman could not be an apostle. But we assume she could not. Therefore, we, we, we twist and turn and find the way to understand this so that it doesn't say what it seems to plainly be saying. This is a married couple. They're apostles. And the word apostle, again, was not a technical religious term when it was being used in the first century. It meant an envoy, a messenger, somebody sent in representation of, commissioned by somebody of greater authority and more power than you. You have been sent out as an ambassador, an envoy, a representative. I think in, in one sense, every missionary that goes out to share the gospel is an apostle. 
And very clearly, Paul claims that title for himself because Christ has sent him out to represent him before the nations by the proclamation of the gospel. And I believe Paul is saying that Andronicus and Junia are also apostles and have shared in the same kind of work he's been doing. They've even been willing to go to prison to be faithful representatives of Christ. And it makes no difference to Paul that one of them is a man and another is a woman. And it, I, I would like to ask you to unburden yourself of the sense that we have to limit what God is up to with women. And consider that God can do anything and everything He wants with men or women. And that we don't need to separate things out. I would suggest to you that the passages you think are talking about men and women and separating roles in terms of service in the life of the church will be completely transformed if you reconsider those passages as dealing with husbands and wives and the dynamic of a marital relationship. So that we're not talking about gender issues, but we're talking about how husband and wife relate to each other within a marriage. Uh, and I think that solves the whole issue of verses in one place that seem to have women doing all kinds of things that other verses seem to indicate they shouldn't be doing. I don't think there is that conflict. I think we're just misunderstanding some of the passages. These have been to prison for Christ. And because of that, they are standout examples among the circle of the apostles. Paul has been in prison. Peter has been in prison. Uh, some of them have been killed. James has been killed. Uh, these two are standout examples of what it means to serve Christ. I'm saddened that the focus of this has been to figure out how to deny Junia that honor. Uh, somehow by robbing her of the title apostle. I don't see why we even need to do that. And Paul says about them, they were in Christ before me. Now Paul came to Christ fairly quickly. He wasn't obviously one of the original disciples of Jesus, but he came to the faith in the earliest days of the church before the gospel had begun to spread to the unbelievers, I mean to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And already when Paul came to Christ, Andronicus and Junia were in the faith apostles of Christ, representing Christ before the world. I think they were probably some of the earliest leaders in the Roman church. Uh, and, and again, this points to how old, how ancient the faith was in the city of Rome. And let's go through a bunch of these, verses 8 through 15. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. There it is again, beloved. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And that's another thing Paul likes to say. He described Prisca and Aquila as fellow workers. Urbanus is also a fellow worker in Christ. He has worked shoulder to shoulder with them. That's really the way to do ministry, is shoulder to shoulder, together. Don't ever be territorial about your ministry. The more the better. Invite people in. Everything you know how to do, teach it to others. Share your ministry and make it broader. <coughs> and broaden the circle. Don't close it down. And Stachys, my beloved, there again. 
those bonds of love Christ puts in our hearts. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those of Aristobulus. This is kind of a fascinating possibility. Aristobulus was a grandson of Herod the Great. And his brother, Herod Agrippa I, was actually ruling in, uh, in the, t the territory of Israel. And, and we, we, we read in Acts about his death consumed by worms there when he's being acclaimed a god. But uh, when Herod Agrippa I was coming to power, uh, they, t they sent Aristobulus off to Rome to get him out of the way. And he never was politically influential. He was never a governor of any sort. Now, he had, he had died uh, like in 43, something like that. So he's, the Aristobulus I'm thinking about would already be long dead by the time Paul is writing this letter. But it is possible uh, that he was a significant figure in Rome. And after his death, there's still this whole household that bears his name. Uh, those of Aristobulus and another reason I kind of think that might be what he's talking about is because the next name is also connected to the family of Herod greet Herodian my kinsman that means this was a Jew who obviously had ties to the land of Israel because uh, that name Herodian is connected to the whole family of Herod and the name of Herod and this this would have been a, a Jewish person who ended up in Rome but who had some ties to the family of Herod to the point that his parents gave him the name Herodian he says greet those of Narcissus and that's an interesting name there was a freedman who during the reign of Emperor Claudius, of course he's dead by the time Paul is writing this letter, but during the reign of Emperor Claudius, Narcissus was a freedman who was one of the most powerful men in Rome because of his connection to Claudius. It may be that this is the Narcissus we're talking about and that there are uh, people connected to him. And this would be a very large household if that's the person we're talking about. People connected to him who have come to faith. Now notice in him he says, uh, he sends greeting to those of Narcissus, those who are in the Lord. So obviously this household is larger than the component in that household that makes up those who have come to faith. So he sends greetings to the subset of those of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Verse 12, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa. I'm tempted to think these are sisters. You know, parents sometimes give their siblings uh, names that kind of go together. You know, Romulus and Remus. Uh, Tryphena and Tryphosa, they're probably sisters, I would think. I don't know. But uh, again, who are toiling in the Lord. Again, not just working, not just laboring, but toiling in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, again. And he also toiled much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Now here's another interesting name. Mark, supposedly, according to the early church fathers, uh, we are told the tradition that he was a close companion of Peter later in life and that he wrote down, shortly after Peter's death, he wrote down what Peter had told him and that was the Gospel of Mark and that uh, Mark was in Rome when he wrote the Gospel. There's a very interesting note here. Because Mark in uh, chapter 15 verse 21 says something that no other gospel writer tells us. 
And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, if Mark is in Rome, uh, and uh, this family has ended up in Rome and become significant figures in the life of Rome, as Paul also is sending greetings to Rufus, uh, then it would make sense that in his gospel he would want to mention uh, the father of these two that are significant figures in Christian life in Rome and, and this connection, this very unique connection that they have to Christ because their father happened to carry the cross beam of Jesus' cross for him on the way to Golgotha. Now this man was from Cyrene which is on the northern coast of Africa just south of Greece. But for whatever reason, he seems to be, uh, have relocated to the, the territory of Israel because he's coming in from the country when, or I don't know, maybe he was there per, for Passover, who knows. Uh, but he was coming in from the country when he was compelled by the Romans to carry the crossbeam for Jesus up to Golgotha. It may be uh, that this Simon came to faith and ended up in Rome and his two sons came to faith and were significant figures in the life of the church in Rome. So Paul knows of him and sends a greeting to Rufus. Not just know of them. This is obviously somebody Paul has a close connection to because he not only says, Greet Rufus chosen in the Lord, but he says, And his mother, and adds, And mine. Paul obviously knows this family well to the point that he calls Rufus's mother. It's like she's my own mom. That's how close the connection is. And he greets another group of people that might represent a house church. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, and Hermas, and the siblings with them, the brothers with them, the I think that's one congregation he's aware of. And he mentions the names of the people he knows. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus, Nereus and his sister, Olympus and all the saints with them. And I think that's another grouping that probably represents another congregation. So I've said this earlier. Paul in writing this letter is writing it to a whole bunch of congregations. The city of Rome was a very large city and there were a lot of congregations scattered through the city and Paul tries to identify the people he knows in each of these congregations. There are very ancient ties to the faith in Rome. And I think Paul's greetings here point that out to us very very clearly and finally he says greet one another with a holy kiss verse 16 all the congregations of Christ greet you Paul says greeting is something you guys need to be doing to one another and do it with a holy kiss and I think this is a, a biblical imperative we need to take to heart it's not enough to say I need to love God and love my neighbor and I'm going to think about that a lot and I'm going to think very loving thoughts toward everybody. Paul says, you know what? Uh, think it. It needs to be an interior reality. But don't stop there. Give each other kisses. Greet each other with a holy kiss and of course Paul is saying nothing lewd nothing sexual nothing of greed of trying to take something from somebody but just 
the sincere affection of a holy kiss. And in so many cultures across the world, even to this day, uh, greet, greeting with a kiss is the way you, you say hello to people. There's this physical connection, a contact, cheek to cheek. You kiss. In other cultures, in our culture, uh, there's the hug. We, we give each other a squeeze. Whatever it is, uh, that needs to be a part of our vocabulary. We need to put physical touch, not lewd, not sexual, but just sincere physical affection. We don't want people to think that we love them. We want them to know it because they have uh, experienced it in the physical expression of it that we give them. Christians need to be affectionate people. We need to put our love on the outside. And people should look at us and say, boy, those people really like each other. They're always hugging on each other and, and kidding. And, and uh, just, you can tell their face lights up when they run across each other. That's what needs to characterize our interactions with one another. All the congregations of Christ greet you. <coughs> What do we make of this, this series of greetings? I think we have a lot we can glean from these 16 verses. I would remind you from this, the repeated use of beloved. That when we come to Christ, we come to Christ because, not because we are virtuous and have chosen to love God. We come to Christ because He has loved us first. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. We come to Christ because He has chosen to love us. And the moment we come to Christ in faith, we become one of the beloved of Christ. And that becomes a new identity. I am no longer worthless. I am no longer despicable. I am no longer to be spat upon. I am treasured by God. And because that is who I am in Christ, that is who I become to you who also are beloved in Christ. If he loves you the way he loves me, you become beloved to me. And Paul says it over and over, my beloved, my beloved. He also says beloved in Christ. They're all tied together. Our lives are bound together in this network of love. We are beloved. That's a precious thing. I think we can also glean from this the fact that Paul uses over and over this term, toiling hard. Not just working, but toiling. The thing we have been called to in Christ is work. It is hard work. It will require a willingness to persevere and to put some effort into it. We're not going to work this into the leftover spaces of our lives. We're going to have to put some grit, sweat, blood, and tears into this. That means that when life does become hard and serving Christ becomes painful,
painful and difficult. That is not the moment to shake your fist at God and complain that somehow He has failed us. Everywhere in Scripture we are told that this is the way it's going to be. To do what Christ has called us to do is going to imply hard work. It was that way with Paul. Let me just give you an example of it. Paul was very sincere about this. You know, he didn't, uh, you know, some people think that the way we honor Christ is anytime somebody asks you how you're doing, just say, I'm doing great, I'm blessed. Sometimes the work in Christ is hard and painful and difficult. Notice how honest Paul is about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. This is what he's just coming out of when he writes the letter to the Romans. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Have you ever said that to someone? I don't want you to be ignorant of this fact. Man, when I was doing this in Christ, this labor Christ had called me to do, there, there was this moment where the burden piled up on me was more than I could handle and I, I despaired of life itself. It's no shame to admit that kind of thing. Paul seems to take pride in it in 2 Corinthians. He talks a lot about his failings and shortcomings and weakness because that's not what's important in the work we've been called to do. It doesn't matter that we're overwhelmed, that it's more than we can handle. It is, it is the task we have been given. The world is our responsibility. It's more than we can handle, but that's fine. It's not more than Christ can handle. So yeah, there's going to be hard work. There's going to be toiling. One more thing I think we can learn from these verses is that we need to raise our sights and understand just how broad this family of faith we are a part of is. Paul is writing to a city he has never been to. Consider for a moment how many lives Paul has woven together into Paul's life. Just by doing the work Christ has called us to. We are part of something so much greater than ourselves. So much greater than our immediate family. So much greater than what's going on here at Prairie Creek. And we have connected with people in the Yucatan and in Cuba. And I'm connected to people in Spain. And there are so many ways in which we are threaded into the tapestry that is the body of Christ the world over. It's a beautiful thing that we are part of this grand family of Christ. My prayer for you today is that you know Christ as Lord and that because of Him you know the joy that it is to be loved by Him and to love those He loves. And that because of that, you are working hard, toiling to carry out the commission we have been given, the task we have been asked to perform here on earth. And that we are sustained by this worldwide network 
of loving brothers and sisters who share the same hard work with us. God bless you. Dear God, we're so grateful to you for life, for rescuing us from sin and death, and for giving us the joyous life of beloved children of yours. This wonderful family that spans the earth and the hard but rewarding work of the gospel. Lord, I pray we devote our lives to its task. And Lord, when we fail, when we reach the end of our rope, when we do not have the strength, carry us and bring us to where you want us. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.